He gave me the sack three times. His belief in nature, his belief in the body's ability to heal itself. I have this wonderful belief that if I look after people, they'll look after me. Hi, and welcome to the Blackmores podcast. I'm Susan Marnie, and today we are talking about a trailblazing naturopath and founder of Blackmores, the late Morris Blackmore. Back in the 1930s, Morris started the first health food store in Australia, planting the seed for a whole new system of healthcare, which is now Australia's leading natural health company, 85 years in the making. I'm here with his son, Marcus Blackmore, to share the story of how it all began. Now Blackmore's executive director, Marcus, has furthered the vision established by his father and made Blackmore's a world leader in natural health, with some great stories along the way, because it wasn't all smooth sailing. We'll also be talking with Philip Daffy, former Director of Research and Development at Blackmores and a longtime friend of Marcus. Together, Phil and Marcus helped pave the way for the Blackmores we see today. Come with us as we dive into the incredible past. Marcus, tell me, how did your father come to be in Australia? Well, it's an interesting story. The story is complex and the complexity is a function of my father um, never worrying about the past. He only worried about the future. Yes, the past has lessons in it for us, but uh, he, he never talked about the past. And it wasn't until he died that I looked at his birth certificate to find out that he was illegitimate. And to be illegitimate in England at the turn of the last century, what we're talking about, um, wouldn't have been the, the best thing. Uh, and I think that's probably why he decided to immigrate to Australia. And he came out here and did all sorts of, you know, I think he did jackarooing and those sort of things that English immigrants of the day did. And then he met a guy in Queensland called Freddie Roberts, who is a naturopath. And he obviously impressed my father. My father had some of, I understand, his own health problems. Um, and uh, uh, he started to take up what ended up as being a lifelong process of learning for him um, as, to be ultimately be a naturopath. And so that's how he started. And then um, he went to America and became, did a chiropractic course and one thing and the next. So he, he ran clinics. And then what happened, he, he had different clinics in different spaces. What he used to do, he put an ad in the paper in country Queensland, whether it was Toowoomba or Warwick or somewhere or Gympie or Maryborough, and he put an ad in the paper and say, uh, world's greatest naturopath, I think he called himself, but it wasn't backward and coming forward, my dad. Anyway, he said, uh, I'll be in town next week, uh, ring up and make an appointment. And he'd book a room in a hotel and he'd see his patients in the hotel. And that's how he started. And in those days, he travelled by train because the roads were bad in Queensland. So, and so did all the politicians. So he got to meet a number of people, people like Joe Jelke Peterson and uh, Frank Nicklin, Jack, Jack Pizzi, all, ex, uh, all became premiers of Queensland. So in 1955, when they tried to chuck my old man out of Queensland, stop him practising as a naturopath and taking away his tools of trade, they, to do that, they had to change the medical acts. They'd send the, the AMA at the time, the Australian Medical Association, or was then called the BMA, the British Medical Association, was the forerunner to the AMA. They'd send people in my father's clinic and photograph his, his diplomas on the wall 
And one of them, for instance, said doctor of chiropractic. So they said this man's a quack, a charlatan, a snake oil salesman, and he's trying to practice as a doctor. And that's the reason for the for this legislation. And it's all there historically in Hansard, uh, the Queensland Hansard. Anyway, the the, uh, the debate went on in the parliament for a number of days and at the end of it all, uh, the legislation was defeated. And it was defeated because of my father's um, uh, association with a number of very senior politicians who stood up for him in the parliament and made comments like, you know, the medical profession believe they are the only people that have any responsibility for people's health, but there are a lot of good people in our community that contribute uh, to health in other ways. And things, comments like that. And so, anyway, he won the day. And remember, in the United States, naturopaths were banned. It became illegal in the United States to practice as a naturopath, and we the the intention was to send us down the same path. The only problem was they ran into my old man, so it's a good story. It is. Where where did he find his resilience and persistence to to keep going? Well, I think resilience is a function of your belief system, and uh, he built a, a profound belief system in nature. He believed, and it wasn't just natural health, but he also had an understanding of nature and and pollution and environmental issues. And, you know, he was years ahead of his time. And it wasn't then until Phil came into the company that we saw a, a real resurgence in, in Blackmore's involvement with uh, environmental issues. And so he, your father's views on natural health and, and preventative medicine, the environment and recycling... So they were nothing sort of short of radical in the 1930s. Um, can you go into some more detail? Or as I said, it was all, it was a belief system for him. He absolutely believed in the whole naturopathic principles. That drove him to doing things like establishing a health food shop. So, and we've got photos. He started a naturopathic health food store in the old Town Hall Arcade in Brisbane in 1938. And we sit back and think about it now, you know, 80 years later or whatever it is, and you just think how radical that would have been um, in his day. Well, for me, growing up in all that environment, I didn't see it radical at all because I was brought up with that same sort of belief system. And... uh, my father wouldn't allow white sugar in the house. Um, he wouldn't allow uh, white bread. He says nothing more than blotting paper. You know, you've got to have a whole grain bread. And that, those things were, you know, those sort of views were fairly radical at the time. But it was his beliefs. It's almost like a religion. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, people say, oh, he's out there it's, and... and like it's some sort of religious fervour or something that he's got. Well, the beautiful thing about all of that story is so many of those things that he said are now well accepted and mainstream and uh, it just justifies the position he's at. But it, it, it's, it's about his naturopathic philosophy, his belief in nature, his belief in the body's ability to heal itself. Our job as naturopaths is to give the body the tools so that it can heal itself. I'll tell you a good story about Charlie Teo, renowned um, brain surgeon. Charlie, interesting enough, used to be a acupuncturist, so he does have a positive view about a holistic approach to health, which is what naturopathy is. 
And Charlie said to me a couple of years ago, he said, I sit there, I get all gloved up, I put the most dangerous chemicals into people's brains. He said, there's got to be a better way to build up the body's own defences. So his work opened the doors of, uh, you know, new ways of treating illness and maximising health. It all started with these, as I said, this belief system he had because he was trained as a naturopath. So all those things. So a lot. the interesting thing is a lot of decisions that we made in the company subsequently because of our naturopathic belief system were things that we didn't have science for. And Phil and I would often sit down and say, well, here's a product, uh, oh, no, we can't put that in it. But there, we didn't have the science for not putting it in, but we had a belief system that underpinned what we did. Is that a fair comment, Phil? Sure, but your father was uh, a practitioner from the early uh, 20th century. You know, he was uh, using the principles of the Austrian and German uh, natural healers and the American naturopaths, which is basically using food as medicine and letting, give, giving your body the resources to heal itself. And what was his vision for, for the industry, sort of as a, as a whole, you know, so he sort of started, you know, so he started this movement, really, and then what did he want to become of it? He had a belief system and it was about improving people's health and their lives. I met a guy the other day, an orthopaedic surgeon, and we were discussing the training and stuff like that, and I said, how long does it take in Australia to be an orthopaedic surgeon? He said, 10 years. Six years of medicine, two years in um, initial practice in, in, in the country areas, working with other orthopaedic surgeons, then back to Sydney to do another two years under a leading orthopaedic surgeon, which this guy was. So 10 years. And I said to him, in that time, how many lectures would you have attended on nutrition? And he said, none, not one. So it sort of, for me, it belies common sense. Here's a, a profession to whom we entrust our health and they have absolutely no knowledge, no knowledge of the petrol, of the fuel that keeps our body going. There's something horribly wrong here. Now, it's, the world's changing. There's no question about that. So there are researchers like Dale Bettison, like Professor Vessel at UTS, who are starting to think outside the square and want to do something about it. And I think Blackmores has a, actually responsibility to support these people. So we're trying to get a, a group of like-minded people together. And I think that's where my father came from. He's most of his work and, he, and the, the, the development of the celloid range, the mineral range of products was largely a function of his own clinical experience. And most of his patients in those days, back in the 40s or what, 50s or whatever, came to my father because they had, they didn't get success with orthodox medicine with their GP. And they probably went to three or four different GPs before in some level of desperation, they went to see my father. And, uh, and if he did them, if he, did, if he got good results, a number of those people said, how can I, I'd like to learn about this. Can you teach me? Well, my father had started, that's how the first colleges, the naturopathic colleges started in Queensland at the time. So all his students were mature age students who'd actually benefited 
from naturopathic um, treatment and practice. So you built this passionate group of people and that was the very foundation of Blackmore's. Every director in those days of the company was a naturopath. So it's hard to keep that up now. Um, you know, you want specific marketing skills. I'd love to think that all the senior people in Blackmore's were naturopaths, but, you know, that's not the commercial reality anymore. And how was school for you? Did you sort of, did you cop any flack from, from kids, you know, with your father? You know, all kids are like that. Yeah, yeah, of course I did. I think at that, by that time, a stage of my life, I'd been part of the, the naturopathic heritage that my father had, whether it was in my home or whether it was not eating white bread or not having white sugar in the house. And he was opposed to uh, uh, pasteurising of, our milk supply was opposed to mass medication. Uh, he didn't believe pasteurising was the answer. Yes, it might have it might have fixed one little tiny disease that existed in at the time, but it basically destroyed a, a, a food that is actually quite valuable to us. So when they introduced free milk in Queensland, he sent a note to the school and said, "Don't feed my son that that stuff." So I was the only kid in the school that wasn't allowed to drink the pasteurised milk. I copped a bit of criticism over that, I, uh, I think. So by that time, by the time I get to Church of England Grammar School, I'm sort of used to, I'm 73 now and I, I, we still get criticism and not as much as we used to, obviously, uh, because the rest of the world's started to wake up. But uh, but it's it's like water off a duck's back, you know. There will, you've got a great idea, there will always be critics. If you do a good bit of research, um, it becomes a challenge for your critics to 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 bring you down, and it's uh, unfortunately the Australian attitude of the tall poppy syndrome is, uh, uh, I think, got something to do with that. But uh, my father just rose above all of that because he absolutely knew the results he was getting with his patients. He had a three-month waiting list at one stage; you couldn't get into him for three months. And how old were you when you started working then for your father? Uh, I think in those days we left school at 6, 17 or something like that. I always, my school holidays were always spent in his, in his practice, in his clinic, because he'd be making things. Uh, he, made, he made a thing called, which we call Naturalax, which was a um, dates, raisins, senna, bit of senna in there, I think a bit of glycerine or something. We used to make the thing out the back. So it was a laxative. Anyway... I'd, I'd go on my school holidays, I'd be there making this stuff, you know, and it tasted pretty good. So I invited one of my mates and ironically, one of my schoolmates, he came in and got a job in the school holidays making this Naturalac stuff, you know. He ended up as a, uh, as a doctor, a very senior doctor in, in practising in Queensland. And uh, so he's in there and he liked it so much, he kept licking the empty bowl at the end before we washed it or something. Well... I think he didn't get off the toilet for a couple of days and uh, uh, so so I've always been, you know, whether it was in there counting the pills and when I was too young, too young and stupid, I remember my father or my mother would give me a, a uh, an exercise book and I'd have to put, I'd have to stick labels in it or something just to amuse myself, you know, because I didn't have any brain power in those days. So, so I'd been there all my life. So it was, there's no definitive time when, oh, now you're suddenly working for your father. So uh, 
It was that long-term involvement in the in the business that stood me in, stood me in good stead. I think we, we were different people. He was a Gemini, and I'm an Aries. Sometimes those signs clash, and he gave me the sack three times um, over different things, uh, most of which I can't even remember anymore. But uh, uh, but I did love my dad. I love what he stood for. I loved his passion. I loved his resilience and whatever to achieve something in life. And uh, so it was a very natural thing for me to, to, in a sense, follow in his footsteps. Um, I did harbour a view that I wanted to prove something for myself and not just to be handed something on a plate, as it were. And uh, uh, so the last time I... Um, the last time he gave me the sack was over a toothpaste tube and I thought we... Because uh, you've got to remember, my father was the professional guy and I was more commercial, shall we say. So I did this new design. I didn't do it myself. I got somebody to design a new toothpaste tube. We were selling 20,000 tubes of toothpaste a month. So it was quite a good product for us. My dad didn't like it. Um, I think he thought that it should be like palm olive shaving cream that he used every day in a green and white tube. He didn't like it. So I, my reaction was, and was uh, we were living at Newport in the time, we had a, a small bathroom, my sister, myself and my mother and father had, you know, in those days you had one little bathroom for the whole house. Now all the kids have an ensuite, but the world's changed. So anyway, I was standing behind him because I... You know, you couldn't have two of us in the bathroom at the same time. And I just happened to be standing behind him. And I said, oh, well, and I made some comment to him like, uh, well, if you're not going to listen to me, you might as well get rid of me. And uh, then I walked away. Um, five minutes later, he came out into the lounge dining room that he had and my mother was sitting there. And he just turned around and he said, well, son, I've given you everything else in your life. All fathers say that, don't they? I've given you everything else in your life. I might as well give you that too. And I want you out of the house as well. And I thought, God, blimey, I think I've overdone this a bit. Anyway, so I uh, tidied up my desk and whatever and uh, over the next month or so and, and uh, then I, I left. Uh, and then I found a bedsitter at Mossman to, under a house there to live in and, and I was unemployed. I wasn't entirely broke but I didn't have any money. I, I went round, particularly our industry, I wanted to stay in that space, but I couldn't get a job. I, I was six months trying to get a job. And then uh, finally, I'd, I'd applied for jobs with pharmaceutical companies and whatever. And so I, I think I learned the experience of being unemployed and not having money and not that my parents had a lot of money growing up, but they were all right. And so I think it was a, it was a valuable part of my life um, to experience those things. And so I, uh, I remember vividly, I had a girlfriend at the time at Crow's Nest and she used to do my CVs and whatnot, which didn't look like much anyway, which is probably why I didn't get a job. But uh, I'd been to see her and I was walking across the main street at Crow's Nest and I looked on the other side of the road and there was a guy there who was crippled and to the extent that he couldn't physically get across the road, he needed somebody to help him, push him or whatever, whatever it was. And I looked at this guy and I thought, I've got my faculties, I've got my health, I've got my physical health, I can do all those sort of things. I've got a good girlfriend, I've got a car, I've got a place to sleep and everything. 
I'm not doing all that bad. I'm not doing all that bad. So it, it actually changed my view of the world a little bit, just that one incident. You know, a lot of people say, what's that one incident in your life that changes things? And I think that was mine. So that was good experience for me too. And then ultimately, as they say, blood's thicker than water and my father asked me to come back, and uh, which he did on two previous occasions anyway. So, so I went back to the business. I felt I was going to, I could go out there and show my old man what I was made of and and then, I, but the only thing I really knew and had uh, had a passion about, and people ask me today, you know, what should I do in life? I said, just find something that you really love doing, and then you'll be good at it. So I knew what I'd love doing, but for me to do that, I'd compete with my father, and I I gave that a bit of thought actually, but in uh, common sense prevailed, and I decided no. So I I decided that I would get. I would get satisfy my ego if I could ultimately build a substantially bigger business than what my father had, and uh, and I think that's possibly come to fruition. So um, because we've all got little egos that we want to satisfy, and and I don't think it would have satisfied my ego just by competing with my father. So and it's I've got to say also it's uh, it's a hell of a lot easier to take a small big business and turn it into a bigger business than it is trying to create a whole new business. So that's the history. Phil, where did your passion for natural health come from? Did that come once you had started at Blackmore's and you'd already met Marcus, or was, was that before? Well, well I, I was a bit of a city hippie, you know, growing up at university. I was sitting down in front of... Uh, well, I was sitting down in front of the horses on Broadway protesting at the Vietnam War. Marcus was, was over there, you know. We had quite... He was a, a conscript and I was a a conscientious objector, even though I didn't have the guts to uh, <laughs> uh, to to do that publicly. The only two public uh, conscientious uh, objectors were uh, Simon Townsend, who used to do Simon uh, Wonderworld, and a guy called Mike Jones. Anyway, so I, I had that uh, that the long hair and the beard and all that sort of stuff, so I had a bit of a hippie background and you sort of verged to the left and, and naturopaths are, are very much to the left. So when I met Marcus... The company was dominated by naturopaths, and I thought these are great, quirky people. I love them. <laughs> so that, uh, but I didn't have any great experience with uh, with natural medicines at that stage. My belief these days is more that if you're sick, you go and see a naturopath. You don't rely on going to a um, a store and, and self medicating. Um, having said that, you know I think the biggest product that uh, that Blackmores or any company can sell is knowledge. Uh, you know, education is is key. But uh, I believe that uh, I believe in, in naturopathy and naturopaths. And if you're sick, go and see a naturopath and get the, the right sort of advice. And you both have such a great rapport and um, obviously a really special friendship. Has that been based on both of your passion for natural health? Is that fair to say? No, more than that. Um, you know, when we were a smaller business, Phil was the technical director. Um, I. I developed, uh, not, not through natural medicine at all, I just developed a, a, a friendship, if you like, with Phil and uh, I understood where he's coming from and I, I had a belief in his ability. For instance, uh, when it came to doing new products, I never made the decision, Phil made all the decisions. And so people would say, well, we were going to do this. I said, I don't know, you have to go and ask Phil. Uh, so I just had great faith in, in what he did for the company and... Uh, 
Uh, I don't think that was a function of his interest in natural medicine. Obviously, part of, obviously that that had something to do with it because he had the knowledge. Um, but it was just, you know, he's a hell of a good bloke. That's all. You know, he was loyal to the business and loyal to the company, and I could I could trust him implicitly. Yeah, you know, somebody said to me the other day, "You're a very rich man. How did you get rich?" And I said, and I, I said, well, I, I don't work hard. I'm basically lazy. But I said, I've got a lot of people that have worked hard for me. I don't pack the pills. I used to when I was on my school holidays with my father. But I said, I don't pack the pills. They do that. And I have this wonderful belief that if I look after people, they'll look after me. And I said, they've done that in spades. That's why, I've, that's why I'm a wealthy man today. And so now I'm fortunate in a position, I think, of, of material wealth that I can, I can give some back and where my wife and I are, are certainly doing that in the last few years. And exciting, you know, it's very rewarding to be able to give things back and do some of the things we're doing and supporting some of the research and whatnot in complementary medicine because that's where I made my money in the first place. Amazing. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Phil, for taking me on that journey and everyone listening on this journey. It's been great to hear about, you know, both of your passion and listening to, you know, the heritage and the culture of, uh, you know, of the company and how far it's come. It is truly amazing. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.